Aubrey Edwards, Tony Shivani, we bout to party, we bout to party, unrestricted, got the house now, we gon' turn it up, up, bring the house down, got that big space pump and make them bounce now, flossing like they bossing and the freaks are coming out now. It's time for another edition of AEW Unrestricted. Tony Schiavone and Aubrey Edwards are with you. Hey, Aubrey. Hey, Tony. I missed you. I love you. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you. Thanks to Alex Everhantes for stepping in for me for a few weeks. But it's great to be back. It's great to have Samoa Joe with us. Joe, how are you, buddy? I'm excellent, man. I'm glad you're back, too. Yeah, this is much more pleasant than having Alex here. I agree. This is way better scenario. <laughs> True heel. Uh, by the way, I just want to say that uh, just to start out this, that Joe at one time only had a 33 and a third chance of beating Scott Steiner. You know, and Scott Steiner was 66 and two thirds chance. Strong math, strong, strong math. <laughs> strong math. And it's almost unbeatable. You know, <laughs> you know, we, we did defy the odds. We did defy the statistical odds, but <laughs> ooh, I mean, when he laid it out like that, I mean, it just kind of made the struggle that much more real in people's minds. You know, I mean, the insurmountable odds that were in front of me, you know, that, that damn thing stood the test of time. I mean, people still talk about that. It did. So, you know, I, I tell people, like, I was standing behind the camera as, like, Scott was kind of, like, free-forming it in his head. Yeah. And I remember kind of, you know, he did an earlier take, and, it, you know, he was kind of getting the idea. And then, like, I think it was, like, the second one, he just went. I was visibly behind the camera just trying to hold my stuff together. And uh, <laughs> when it all got done, I just looked at Scott. I, was, I, was, I think I was the one. Yeah, <laughs> That was tremendous, man. I just want to hit you with that first, but I want to let you know how great it is to have you here. You made your appearance at the ROH Supercard of Honor uh, back in uh, Dallas not that long ago. And what a response, man. What a response for you, not only there, but your first time in Dynamite. You had to be really thrilled about that. Well, absolutely. You know, I've, I've uh, been fortunate enough that the fans have uh, have migrated with me on my many adventures and many journeys and many companies. So, uh, you know, it's, it's always good to get a warm welcome I'm curious what it was specifically like coming back to Ring of Honor and knowing that you have such a long storied history there. And we'll talk about that a little bit. I know I was watching it live and seeing the flames on the screen. I'm like, oh, I have an idea of who this is. And you have such a unique look about you that I think one step outside of the curtain and everybody immediately knew like, oh, my God, Joe's here. This is great. What did it mean to you to come back at that show specifically? I think when we, when you talk about the length of my career and like, kind of where things started and, and I really came into my own. It would be in Ring of Honor. I mean, obviously, the, the, the championship reign there and then just the incredible amount of talent that was kind of crossing paths within the promotion, uh, whether on their, on their way up or on their way down or somewhere in between or making a rebound. I mean, it was such an interesting place in the business at the time because really there was no alternatives. There was nowhere for anyone outside of, of, of WWE to really kind of express themselves and it kind of was the forerunner to impact or TNA at the time, and, and many other promotions to follow. We're talking with Samoa Joe here on AEW Unrestricted. Uh, you were, uh, Tony Khan obviously reached out to you to join this company. How did that all happen? It was a process. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough that even though uh, after my WWE release, I was already kind of engaged in some, in some outside projects that were really cool. But, you know, my agent, I think, you know, him and Tony, they kind of have a, a repartee have dealt with each other before, I believe. Sure. And, uh, you know, they got together and started, you know, brainstorming, going back and forth. And then me and Tony got in touch. Uh, you know, Tony's been always like right in contact with me, uh, doing his best to get to me whenever uh, the opportunity arose. And um, 
couple of discussions with Tony, a couple of discussions between them, and uh, yeah, it all worked out nicely. What was your first like meeting with Tony Khan like? Because he's a very excited guy and just yells like, let's fucking go all the time. <laughs> so I, I actually met Tony prior to, uh, you know, AEW and everything, just, uh, you know, backstage at a WWE show, kind of hanging out. And, you know, he's just, uh, you know, very cool, quirky guy, man. He just like, he's got a lot of ideas. And he's a person that I liken Tony to like a, just an overfilled balloon where it's that all you got to do is just, just, just prick the skin. And then all the ideas and all the, everything's going to come flooding out in a, in a mass and like really high energy dude. And, uh, you know, seemed cool. And, and I mean, our, our, our talks since then have always been very, very cool. And we, uh, we get along well, man, you know, have a lot of commonality in, in certain things. I, I know from working backstage, uh, at that ring of honor show, your debut at you getting to, uh, to Dallas was a challenge because of weather issues and you did make it obviously. Uh, but that was a very challenging day because of the weather issues. But, uh, Hey, you've been in the business long enough to know that sometimes travel can be difficult. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I know, I know, uh, there was weather preventing jets to get into Tampa on time and right. a lot of mechanical issues, flights going out. And so uh, I had to end up driving to uh, cross city, Florida, small little uh, kind of a uh, rural town in the middle of Florida to catch a private jet to get up to the show. And it was, uh, it was quite an escapade. The best part was, is as I arrived to the airport, I walked into this little office, uh, this little man sitting behind the counter looked at me and I said, Hey man, uh, you know, I'm here. I got a jet coming in and picking up. And he just goes, well, what time? I said, well, I think seven o'clock. And he goes, well, we close at six, man. Uh, see what I can do. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I remember Tony came to me and he said, where is Cross City, Florida? Have you ever heard of it? And I had to go on my phone and look at Wikipedia. I said, yeah, here it is. It's like southeast of Tallahassee, a little bit north of Tampa. And I said, there's really an airport there? He said, yeah, there is. So I didn't know there was a city there, to be honest with you. So, I mean, yeah, it was, it was quite a surprise that to everybody. <laughs> that was good. I like that the guy that lives in Florida is like, where the hell is this place? <laughs> that should automatically tell you. Yeah, I spoke to several people here and, and, and many, many people who are, uh, I would describe as, as fine country folk. And even they were like, I've, I've never heard of Cross City. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So the fact you made it is even like a testament to itself. It's like, oh, man, first he ended up in this place that nobody believes is real. Yeah. Then he finally made it on a plane <laughs> after they've been closed, made it to Dallas, which is like where travel goes to die and all the weather's terrible. So against all odds, you have this incredible debut. So thank you for everything that you endured because oh, that's... You, you, can, you can thank Tony's pilots, man. They, uh, they went above and beyond and uh, trying to get down there and find me. Yeah, they're good guys. <laughs> okay, so show up, Supercard of Honor, and then you have your Dynamite debut against Max Caster, and then immediately go on to face Suzuki in one of the most brutal chop battles I've ever seen. I'm surprised that like your chest doesn't have a permanent hole in it. His either. And then you end up winning the television championship, which is incredible because you've, I think you're still the longest reigning uh, ROH world champion. And now you've got this television championship. How did that match all come together? And what does that mean to you? I mean, you know, things move fast and you know, as improbable as it seems, you know, uh, I liken it to much like the math Tony brought up before. I mean, you know, we're, we're used to overcoming kind of insurmountable and unusual uh, calculations and odds. And I think that's kind of how the, the past two weeks have played out. I mean, you know, came in, debuted for Ring of Honor, made my debut on Dynamite, obviously a lot of fun there and uh, a good little opponent just to, you know, get the, get the blood boiling a little bit. And then, you know, coming right in, Tony offered me the opportunity next week because, hey, uh, you know, I have this idea, we, you know, we have, you know, Suzuki will be around. I just think it's only natural that these uh, two forces should collide. And, uh, you know, I was 100% in. I said, absolutely, let's go. And uh, a week later, here we are. 
We are talking with Samoa Joe. This is AEW Unrestricted. Tony and Aubrey with you, and uh, it's great to have Joe with our company. And I, I think uh, you, everyone obviously knows the response he has and and what he has done in this wrestling business. And Joe, for your years in Ring of Honor, you've worked with many guys who now work with us. CM Punk, Brian Danielson, a couple, uh, obviously uh, Jay Lethal, who you're kind of involved with right now. So I, I'm sure it's good seeing people here, seeing guys here that you've worked with before. I think it's a testament to kind of the influence Ring of Honor has had the industry because, you know, I could say that about just about any locker room I, I would walk into in this day and age. Right. And you know, I think, you know, many of the top performers in this industry, you know, found their way through Ring of Honor. And, um, you know, I think that's why the, the promotion holds a, a real special place in my heart, I think, for a lot of fans and for a lot of the performers who spent their time there was that it was the first true forum a lot of us had to where we could kind of go out there and be the persona and the wrestler that we wanted to be. To have that ability in this day and age, it, it, you know, there's very few places where that could happen, where you could, you know, really f- have a fan base, really go out there, you know, be the performer you wanted to be and kind of come into your own. Many of the top guys in the industry today, you know, like I, and I said it at, at the show, you know, they, they, they came through the Ring of Honor ring. They were kind of forged there and then, you know, went on elsewhere to, to find greatness. So it, it all means a lot to me in that aspect. Are there any of those guys that you're particularly excited about having rematches with after all these years? I mean, obviously, you know, uh, me and Punk have been uh, skirting around this issue for a while, and I think we need to get it settled. <laughs> you know, Danielson, you know, anytime I step in the ring with him, uh, you know, we get down. Up and down the roster, we talk about guys who, you know, I've worked with in Ring of Honor that I'm currently uh, on the roster with now in AEW and Ring of Honor. I mean, yeah, any one of those guys. I mean, it's just, it's wide open. We're talking with Samoa Joe, and we are talking about his career. Actually, we're going to be talking more about his career after the break, but right now we're talking about his arrival here in AEW. And AEW Unrestricted, by the way, Tony and Aubrey with you. Uh, Joe, you've been doing some uh, talent scouting as of late as well. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. Before uh, when WWE was heavily involved in their scouting department. And, uh, right. You know, now uh, kind of keep those eyes open and keep those eyes out there for, for a different purpose, obviously. Uh, you want to have some of the best up-and-comers coming into uh, your company. And uh, if I can help facilitate that for AEW, then I'd be more than happy to. Do you like doing that? I mean, is it something that, you know, you think that... I, I, uh, I've, I've learned to appreciate it and like it because of men like William Regal who, in their in the height of their career, took time to give me advice. And right. Just show me a path. It wasn't, hey, I'll put in a word for you. I'll do this. It was like, no, here's the path. And if you choose to follow it, you can find success. And right. It's just something that's kind of missing in the industry as a whole. You know, there's just not a lot of guys who, who have that experience kind of going back and, and, and having honest discussions with dudes about, what the industry is like, what this, what this business really is and, and breaking down the numbers and, and not just get kind of being grandiose and bragging about how you're awesome. And this is how much you did and this and this and this. It's like, you know, every empire is built with a plan. And uh, the problem is we don't talk about the plan enough. We just talk about the empire. So, you know, I'd like to change that. You know, any, anytime I can offer a word of advice to somebody uh, young and up and coming and, you know, want to put themselves in the best possible position to succeed, which I think is vitally important to anybody in our industry is, putting yourself in a position to be successful, not just, you know, waiting for something to break or happen is a big asset bank of our knowledge, which isn't shared enough. And, and I'd like to see that happen more. I absolutely love that. Yeah. Very well said, Joe. Uh, and by the way, we are talking to Samoa Joe on AEW Unrestricted, and we'll continue uh, talking about his early years when we continue here on, did I repeat myself, Aubrey? Yeah, you did, but you know, you've been gone a bit, so it's fine. Unrestricted. Stay with us. <laughs> 
This is AEW Unrestricted. Aubrey and Tony here with the wonderful and amazing Samoa Joe. He's had a long, storied career in wrestling, and he's finally at AEW. I think it was inevitable at this point with just the amount of talent that he brings to the ring and the history he has as a performer and everything that he's going to be able to do for our roster and making us better. I know I'm personally very excited to finally get a chance to work with you and learn from you and all your experience and whatnot. So it's going to be great. We mentioned in the earlier segment, you're the longest reigning ROH champion. I think it's 645 days. What does that mean to you after all of these years to still have that record? I'm surprised it's still standing, to be honest. Uh, I thought Jay Lethal had a, had a, had a shot at eclipsing that, but it's a, it, such a rarity, I think, in this industry to be able to hold a championship that long. And I think, uh, you know, during the breadth of the reign, what we were able to accomplish, you know, we, we checked a lot of the boxes that we sought to check out. And, um, you know, I, I had to give Sapolsky on that. You know, at the time, you know, it was a very radical idea. And, uh, you know, he saw it through by hook or by crook, and, and, and it worked out well for us. And, uh, and I appreciate him taking that gamble. Start of your reign was back at the Night of Champions in 03, which you wrestled twice that night, we understand. I've heard guys talk about this a lot, that they used to have to wrestle twice in one night. Did that happen to you a, a lot? More so earlier in my career, because, you know, a lot of times, especially in Southern California, you would get these little kind of spot fair shows. So you'd have a couple shows throughout the day. And, uh, you know, at the time, too, like I was so, you know, new in the business, like, you know, oh, t- two shows a day. Awesome. You know, cool. <laughs> right. no more experience. This will be awesome. This will be great. And, uh, you know, I, I rue that now because it's tough because, you know, we, we get through one. It's like, ooh, <laughs> it's especially right. uh, with the level of competitors that you that you end up inevitably facing off in the ring with. Right. Uh, at this level. But uh, yeah, back then, you know, you're all gung ho and you're all for it. I, you know, I've, I've done uh fair shows where it'd be like three in a day, you know, and you'd be all right. <laughs> wow. I think everybody who's come up through the Indies, it's like, oh, yeah, remember, remember back when those days were happening and very <laughs> grateful for what we have now. It's like, okay, cool. I only have one match. This is great. The worst, though, and this happens more often than not, will be, hey, kind of go out there the first match and, you know, really give them a show. And then, and then the next match, like, hey, uh, we got to switch up things a little bit. You make them hate you. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, the same kid you just saw. Yeah, I don't know. Mush them in the face. And, yeah. yeah. Kick their popcorn over. Well, and I think for yours, it was like you had a singles match and a tag match, which is like a completely different mindset shift. And then all of a sudden, it's like, okay, well, yeah, now we just have to do this other thing. Not like I was really thinking about that at all. So testament to you, man. That's that's where, that's where you hope that you're working with uh, a lot of people who know what the hell they're doing because it makes that whole scenario a lot easier. <laughs> right. Uh, you made your ROH debut. Back in October of 2002 at uh, Glory by Honor, the pay-per-view, in a match versus Low-Key. It was supposed to be a one-off appearance, but then you ended up getting a contract. Uh, how soon after that pay-per-view and that match did that happen? Oh, uh, like, I think immediately after the match when I walked in the back. Go through the curtain. Hey, do you want to work here? <laughs> it was. It was. Well, it was funny. And I very much understand the time, but like, you know, you know, ROH is very hot for the Indies, and it was really kind of one of the few places to work, so everybody was kind of beating down the door trying to get in, especially in the Northeast. And I was a West coast guy and, you know, independent promotions, young starting out, you know, that, that flight from Los Angeles, a lot of money, you know, for, for a company to really, to really eat every week or every single show. So, right. And at the time, Christopher Daniels was their regular fly out from, so that's what they had budget. The Christopher Daniels West coast ticket. They had that budgeted. They did definitely didn't have a second ticket budget. So, uh, but after that match, I think they found room in the budget. So it was, it was pretty nice. And, you know, it was all history after that. <laughs> Low-key was the first opponent. I know low-key, interesting guy for a first opponent. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and a very, you know, obviously very intense individual. And no question. Like, stand yeah. there and mix it up and stuff. So Right. And it just kind of made it easier for me because, like, you know, that's very much how I am. You know, I'm not 
I don't shy away from uh, from the impact and the violence. And uh, you know, when you get those two elements together, you know, usually uh, somebody's entertained. You know? <laughs> so absolutely. You know, like I said, you know, just uh, after that match and being in there with him and trying to give them a, a very clear picture of, of, of what I do and what I'm capable of, and they were very impressed. And uh, hey, we started the fire that night. That's right. So speaking of violent matches. Back in 2004, you had to defend the world title against Homicide, mm-hmm. which I think this is the one where I ended up bringing a fork to. <laughs> Did you have any say in the fact that it's like, oh, we're just going to keep putting you in all these violent matches with these super hardcore guys? Like, <laughs> uh, You know, you no. Know, but at the same time, it's like that's you're the top guy. You know, you're that's what you're expected to do. You know, we have to. And, and, and that's very much how Ring of Honor was at the time. You know, it was very, very predicated on whether we drew or not whether we survived or not you know it was directly linked to uh, our survival so you know it's like if i wanted to work and i wanted my boys to work and we were you know like i said it was a very big locker room and and i I think many of the people would say in there at the time a very big family it's like yeah okay absolutely let's do this let's do this here let's do this there you know it was anything just to keep momentum going and keep the company moving forward and um that was my responsibility so it was like it wasn't a matter of whether it was i had a say or not it was a matter of whether i wanted to take on the task or not and that was what was put in front of me, and I was all for it. Talking with Samoa Joe, uh, Joe, I wanted to, to kind of move back a little bit. Talk about your uh, when you first started in wrestling. When did that all start? When did your interest in wrestling begin? Interest in wrestling probably was, you know, throughout my life. It, it was one of the few things, I think, uh, universally as a family, we could watch around the house together simply because we all love different sports teams and uh had very heated rivalries whenever it came to uh, discussing anything sports. <laughs> Any sports matters at the dinner table were much like politics in other houses. I mean, we were very passionate and very, very split. But wrestling was was one of the few things that I think we would all kind of sit down and watch together. And for us, my family ran a Polynesian dance troupe. You know, uh, we toured the world. We were constantly on the road. So the gig life was already kind of inherent in what I did. Sure. And I very much understood it. My family had a very good understanding of it. So pitching, becoming a pro wrestler to them, or that I was going into the pro wrestling field, the discussion was literally, they pay? Yeah. All right. You know, and then that was, that was right. kind of the, yeah. and, and, you know, honestly, and people would say, oh, you know, wrestling is dangerous to the care. I mean, you understand I came from a family of fire knife dancers, you know, uh, we all had third, second degree burns going into, you know, coming out of high school. So it was like, uh, it might've been a, a safer career choice actually for me at a certain point. So it was just a very natural progression, obviously uh, growing up in the show, being in front of people was never an issue for me. Uh, you know, kind of was very, very natural. And um, pro wrestling, I always say, was my second career in show business because my first career, you know, was from when I was five years old till I was in my early 20s. And then from there, I left and I became a professional wrestler. So right. there's never been a time at one time or another where I've been on stage or have been in front of people. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's my lot in life. <laughs> and I, I know, like uh, most of the wrestlers, you live in the Florida area now, but you, you grew up in the Southern California and lived there most of your life, right? Yeah. And and, and honestly, we, we live kind of back and forth between Florida and, and, and California. But now I'm hard in Florida because obvious all the, the craziness in the world just made it easier. Yeah. Growing up in Southern California, I, I wouldn't change it for the world, especially for the time I grew up in Southern California. And, you know, the experiences and the people and uh, obviously kind of growing up in a, in a crazy uh, fire knife dancing hula show with uh, where you're kind of around the world all the time. It was a unique uh, upbringing and a, and a very, very fun one. I want to know more about this fire knife dancing. How, <laughs> how does one start fire knife dancing other than having your family thrust one in your hand? <laughs> My experience, your father takes you out in the back. First, he hands you a large knife, which he teaches you how to spin that safely. 
And then after that, the knife is then <laughs> lit on fire. And then, you know, there's some protocol stuff. And, you know, basically it's a lot of small burns and little ouchies here and there. And uh, you do your best not to set your hair on fire and uh, and not make him mad in the process. Yeah, it's, it's unusual to say the least. <laughs> is this something that was uh, handed down uh, from a generation? Did his father do this too? Oh, yeah. And, and for my father too, like my brother, you know, I think one time easily is probably one of the greatest knife dancers in the world. My father was hired by Walt Disney. He produced a show in, Walt, in, in Disneyland at the time of the Teaching Terrace for years. And, you know, he was one of the innovators and, and one of the first guys to bring fire knife dancing as a entertainment in an entertainment capacity to the United States. Yeah, just it was a family tradition. My brother's my brother still runs the show to this day. Wow. My nephews and nieces, they, you know, my nephews especially, they're all still fire knife dancing. They're still competing and, and doing everything, too. So, uh, yeah, they, they stay active. Where are they located if anybody wanted to go see them? Southern California. Uh, two, two poor productions out of Southern California. Awesome. That's fantastic. So it's you've, you're no no stranger to the gig lifestyle and whatnot. You enter wrestling. I know you spent some time in Japan, I think, with Noah and Pro Wrestling Zero One. Talk about that a little bit. So uh, Japan kind of was my initial first big gig, even before Ring of Honor. And uh, my first kind of when I realized, oh, this is what I want to do for a living. You know, um, I went over for Pro Wrestling Zero One, who at the time was under Shinya Hashimoto, who was passed, unfortunately. And um, it was a great experience. But the, the only thing that was usual is kind of a half shoot fight, half pro wrestling uh, promotion. So, I mean, a lot of times I remember doing, you know, road shows and they're just like, hey, it's you versus Gerard Gordeaux, you know, the guy who ripped the dude's eye out in MMA and, you know, is a Dutch kickboxing champion and has no idea how to, how to go in there and do anything but kick people's heads off. And you're like, oh, sweet. You know, like, and uh, yeah, that happened uh, a few times or, you know, just local rings, pancreas, judo guys, all kinds of stuff. So it was a very much a kind of on the job learning experience, but, a, but a, a valuable one for me. Joe, you have, you've had a couple of, uh, we've talked about some notable matches early in your career in Ring of Honor. Also, the uh, ROH World Title Classic in 04 against CM Punk, the 06 Fight of the Century against Brian Danielson. Uh, we're talking about 60-minute time limits. Mm-hmm. That's got to be difficult to prepare yourself for and to pace yourself. The biggest difficulty is kind of getting over the mental stigma of it. I know for me, like, you think, oh, man, it's just, it's hard to, to really go those lengths and, and to keep the crowd engaged and keep everybody, you know, keep everything going. Sure. And really, that's the biggest thing. And then once you're in there, and it's funny, I think after you, the 15-minute mark, you kind of just fall into, your body kind of falls into a rhythm. You, you're Mentally, you fall into a rhythm and like you're in, you're locked in, at least for me. And, and like I said, when you're in the ring with guys who are as talented as both of those individuals, it, you know, it makes that 60 minutes move at a, at a blistering pace, you know, so... It, it was something that kind of was lost with the annals of time and, and television, you know, to be able to kind of do that in a 60 minute match or have that much time in a modern era was, was such a rarity and such a, a cool experience. And uh, they were fun matches. And we're talking about individual matches and opponents, but are there any matches from your time at Bring of Honor, even from your time at TNA that really stand out to you as some of your favorites or most memorable? I always say most of the, my most personal favorite matches always usually happen on house shows just because it's, just this way more freeform environment and things happen. There's a lot of organic things in the crowd. But I mean, time and ring of honor, I mean, obviously, you know, Kobashi, the, the punk matches, anything with Danielson. And then when I got to TNA, you know, AJ, anything I do with AJ, anything I do with Daniels, those were like matches that I always remember fondly. But it's also because, you know, all those people are friends of mine. They're all, you know, people I'm close to in life and, and who I hope well for uh, outside of the ring, maybe not so much inside of the ring, but, um, 
that added kind of bonus is what kind of makes those matches memorable for me. So that, that's definitely the biggest thing. You know, we've talked so much about your Ring of Honor time. Uh, talk a little bit about your your time at TNA. How was that for you? It was, you know, it was fun. It was a great time. You know, obviously, I would say that was, you know, kind of more of my national exposure occurred. And right. Kind of the greater breadth of America got to see me and see what I do. It was enjoyable because the people that I was work I, I, I had the chance to work with at the time, you know, they were all people either, you know, I had known in Ring of Honor and had good relationships with already, or there were new up and coming guys who like were really hungry and, and like open-minded as far as like what they wanted to see in a wrestling ring and wanted to push the envelope and do things different. Those, those types of people are infectious and it's hard not to, you know, be enthusiastic and want to work with them when they're, you know, ready to kind of go out there and, and try new things. We're talking to Samoa Joe here on AEW Unrestricted. Absolutely storied career, and I feel like you're just getting started, man, even after everything you've already done. Coming up, we have lots and lots of fan questions. People are so, so excited to talk to you. This is AEW Unrestricted. Aubrey and Tony talking to Samoa Joe, recent signee to AEW. Total badass. Just, I'm ready to see him absolutely kill people. This is exciting. We have lots of fan questions from Twitter. The first one we have uh, from James Stewart. Who's at the top of your list of talent that you'd like to compete against at AEW? I mean, really, you throw a rock, you hit somebody in the locker room. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a matchup. AEW is really tough because, like I said, there are just so many individuals that are out there. And um, I've always kept an open, you know, hey, anytime, anyplace, anybody, anywhere, any way you want it. Like, let's go. I mean, this. <laughs> Let's, let's stay off the dream matches. It's a lazy question. They all can get it. That's a, that's a great attitude. That, it really is. Anybody, let's get it. I appreciate that, Joe. I really do. Ed Brody Cole wants to know uh, about, uh, it says, ask Joe about voicing King Shark in the Suicide Squad game. Awesome experience. You know, uh, a Suicide Squad coming out next year. Big game from Rock City Studios, uh, mostly known for their Batman games, which are all incredible. Yeah, it, it's really cool to be voicing a DC character and uh, kind of bringing it to life, especially one that's kind of found uh, so much love in, in recent years with the Suicide Squad movie. And uh, I just hope I uphold the legacy and I make fans happy because uh, it, it's a very, very fun project to do. And I'm having a blast doing it. Speaking of games, you have a question from UNG. What games have you been playing lately? And will we see you on our AEW arcade Twitch stream? I had no idea on the Twitch stream, as I'm just learning about it right now. And uh, <laughs> I'll talk to Uno. We'll get you on. It'll be great. Yeah, uh, what I'm playing right now, uh, let's see here. Uh, Elden Ring. Oh, my God. Finished that out last week, so we got that done. Uh, ruin your life if you do start playing. You finished it? You finished Elden Ring? Yeah, I did. Holy hell. Yeah, we, yeah, we finished things over here. You know, we get yeah. it done. <laughs> yeah, no broken builds, okay? You know, we did, okay. we did a straight up a real build. Not no hyper super magic build, no. <laughs> wow. Finished that, so I'm kind of out of that. Uh, been messing around with uh, Tiny Tina just because I like the Borderlands games. And uh, I mean, that's it about it right now. I mean, obviously, I'll jump in some Warzone here and there whenever I'm feeling froggy. But uh, yeah, that's kind of what's been taking up my time lately. Wow, big props for finishing Elden Ring. Because yeah. I just like, I went... Now nah, the hell with this. <laughs> like- hey, let me put it this way. I, I, I got frustrated with it. I put it down for about a week and a half. And then I had like a really intense three days where I couldn't be anywhere. And uh, yeah, we got, we got into it. <laughs> oh, good. Well, congrats on that. Dennis Dirty Work wants to know, how has your in-ring style changed over the years? First a run of ROH compared to now. I don't know. I, you, you tell me. I mean, 
<laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the logical thing is, you know, you're older, and as you get older, you know, you change a little bit, right? I mean, oh, yeah. that's kind of the way it is. Uh, I think, I, oh, I stopped doing a knee drop. That was like a absolute, I needed to change just because I knew I was wrecking my knee every time I did it. But, uh, I mean, outside of that, just making smarter decisions as far as, like, what we're, what, what we're doing and where we're going. And, I mean, that's pretty much it. Got a question from Real Steve V. I was relatively new to watching TNA wrestling when Kurt Angle arrived. The initial meeting between you two is one of my top five greatest moments ever. And did you know that it was going to be so intense at the time it was happening? Uh, yes, I did. No doubt. Because Kurt was already intense, like walking through the door. And I was like, oh, this guy's really hyped up here. Here we go. You know, so I knew it would be every bit intense. You know, Kurt's an intense individual. Like many of the guys who have an extensive amateur background, there is a at an Olympic level. And, and I mean that because, like, you know, talking to guys like Bobby Lashley and, and just a lot of, like, really high-level collegiate, amateur, whatever you want to call it, wrestlers, most of these men have tremendously intense, focused mindsets. You know, some say it's grilled into them at the, at the training center, the Olympic training center. Some say, you know, just through the program and how, and how they come up and what they do. But, you know, they're very, very focused, very, very intense. Worrying about Kurt being there and, and hyped is, is never an issue. And I'd say the same for, you know, many people of his ilk. Joe, you've already kind of touched on this uh, with your family, but Oblomos Pro Wrestling wants to know, can you tell us about how life was growing up in Huntington Beach? It was great. You know, Huntington Beach was a big melting pot of a place with, you know, a lot of different cultures and a lot of different great food. And, you know, my neighborhood was uh, just a really fun time. man. You know, I was, I was very fortunate to grow up in the area in the time that I did. What more can be said? You know, you could surf in the morning, snowboard in the afternoon and, uh, you know, be back on the beach at night to, for, for a bonfire. So, I mean. It was a great life, and uh, and I enjoy it. And I enjoy Southern California very much. Do you see yourself moving back? We'll see. Honestly, at this point, kind of where I live and where I go is more predicated on whatever projects I'm working on right now. So I don't have much of a say in it. It's just, uh, but I can definitely see it probably happening, at least in a short-term capacity. We have a question, another Huntington Beach question from Slack and Sadie Meatloafs. These names, man, they're freaking crazy. Uh, one of the things I miss most about living in Huntington Beach is Lucy's Deli and the best damn Italian bread ever. What's your favorite place in Huntington Beach to grab a bite to eat? Ooh, uh, Mother's Market uh, in the Beach Boulevard. Uh, probably the best breakfast and lunch. Actually, it's it's more it's a health food spot. Like, it's been there forever. And I'm not, like, the biggest, uh, oh, you know, super plant, vegan, vegetarian guy. But they do have a really great, like, uh, they call it the Baja Surfer kind of a simple beans and rice kind of tortilla thing meal in the morning that all the surfers used to eat before they go out to get the morning sets. And, uh, man, I got, I got, I don't know what the heck they put in there. You know, they say there's no meat or whatever in there, but damn, it tastes good as hell. <laughs> uh, let's go back to, uh, talk about video games because, uh, Leon Collins wants to know being a big gamer. Do you plan to brainstorm with two of our most important gamers, a girl that you're looking at right now, Aubrey Edwards, Kenny Omega, about the new video game that's in the works. Do any brainstorming on that? They want to know. So the simple and uneducated answer is, oh, yes, absolutely. The real answer is <laughs> I've been involved in game development for, you know, I think five or six games now at various different levels and capacities and very different, different levels of involvement. And one of the most important things about developing a game is a unified singular vision for what the game should be. Boom. That being said, more voices in the room, even though they're awesome gamers and they have great ideas and they're great people, isn't necessarily best for the product. So I think unless I was solicited, <laughs> I like to keep the paint in the, in the hands of the painters and let them come up with what they come up with. Nicely said. 
This is a podcast about Joe, but I could probably go on for about 20 minutes about why design by committee does not work in yeah, game development. It doesn't. It, 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 I've seen it kill games. I have too. And, you know, I, I have friends who are developers. In fact, I have a lot of friends who are developers who are currently involved in decision by committee games. I feel for them because the things they say to me, I mean, a therapist would pay a lot of money to have to deal with. <laughs> wow. Right. It's like there's idea guys don't really exist. Like you got to be able to do something and implement something. But like, yeah, it's like, no, you have to have that unified vision in order to make something great. Mm. And everybody kind of needs to fall in line with that. It's like, oh, man, I'll shut up. I could go on for days about this kind of shit. <laughs> well, before you hit the next question, Aubrey, the same could be said about wrestling creativity. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, really, it could. And creativity in general. Now, you know, like I said, whether whether it be a painter or a sculptor, I mean, listen, I, I think I think collaborative art can be awesome, and, I, and I've seen it be awesome. But it takes a tremendous amount of synchronicity between those people collaborating. Not just, hey, you're a great idea person, you're a great idea person. Let's see if this meshes. And rarely it does. Right. I liken it to the Lakers super teams. You know, every time they try to build a super team over in L.A., it falls apart. You know, so right, <laughs> exactly. Case in point. Come on, man. Let's go, Lake Show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We got a question from Dragon Master Adam. I want to know your opinion on the Forbidden Door. As you said, you previously weren't a fan of it. Yeah. And I'd stand by my comments. Dang. Well, here. And here's the thing is like, so maybe my definition of Forbidden Door and yours is different, but mine was always WWE. Right. Okay. Well, that door is still not open. And, you know, if you're talking about co-promoting with like New Japan and other promotions and Ring of Honor, okay, that's fine. But to me, that's never been considered a forbidden door. You know, like I co-promoted with Ring of Honor New Japan years ago. You know, we did the best Super Juniors. Didn't turn out well. Wasn't a good collaboration from that experience. That's what I based my experiences on. You know, and even to this day, when you talk about forbidden door, you know, I'm talking about it from from a standpoint of where I'm at and where the peoples are at. <laughs> so is that the door that's currently up is what adds value to a lot of the wrestlers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me, even though I've dealt with Tony and, and I have a very different feeling now that I'm dealing personally with Tony, and talking business about how he handles himself and what his vision is, which is very noble. And, and I'm surprised to hear it. But, you know, when, when the promoters start working together, does that usually work out for the wrestlers? Like, I'm just talking about from a labor standpoint, you know, like there, there's value in the exclusivity that's going on right now. Let's not deny it. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, this may blow up a narrative, but like, that's how I understood it. Right. You know, like I said, I'm not on the internet every day, like catching on all the buzzwords and like getting with the revolution and stuff. And, you know, I th and I think like the arguing between the AEW and the WWE fans is ridiculous. Oh, Watch pro wrestling. I hate it. You don't need to like dunk on this dude. It's you taking your ego and, and taking something you have nothing involved with and like trying to start a, a conflict with something else. I mean, watch what you watch. Enjoy what you want to enjoy. But hey, I'm, I'm always going to be pro value for wrestlers. Right. No matter what. I'm always going to be pro. Hey, wrestlers should be getting the top dollar, getting paid the most they should possibly be paid and be valued at the highest level. And I will never apologize for that opinion. And I will never go back on that opinion. Hell yeah. And if guys take that as like some shot, like, oh, well, now you hear and now you sold out and your opinion is not. No, my opinion is still the same. And as far as I see, that door's still up. But there's benefits to that door being up. and There's benefits to that door being open. That door can't be open. But listen, there's got to be a lot of change industry-wide before I'd be comfortable with it as a performer. And from where I'm standing as an entertainer who's been in this business, who has actually dealt with the financials. And knows what this business is about. Right. So, I mean, I know you have your glorified view of what this war is. You think we line up on each side and we say, ah, but the real war is us trying to entertain you people. Not this ridiculous between you all. You know, like. Hell yeah. Joe, very well said, my man. We appreciate that. Really do. Jay Rocket 121 wants to know, did you have any input on your AEW theme music? I didn't. I did not. 
But I, but, I, but I thought he did, you know, he did a tremendous job with what he was given. Uh, Ruckus. Yeah, yeah, Mikey. Like I said, uh, I'm still relatively new. I've, I've, like, I've only met with the company probably three times now, so I'm still getting to know everybody and everything. But I was just surprised that uh, they, they, they had the track done so quickly. So, yeah, all good. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Mikey Ruckus can turn around something in like 24 hours. Like, hey, Sting's going to be here. Can you make something that's like legendary and super like impressive for this guy? It's like he just he, he does good shit. It's really awesome. Personally, I'm I'm very interested in this question. Thirsty Monkey asks, "What are your thoughts on the Joe's gonna kill you chant?" Cool. I mean, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm not. I mean, I don't know what more there is to say about that. You know, you're gonna be like, "Well, I have it's very com- I have very complex emotions about it." You know, on the one hand, I do love the sport. On the other hand, I mean, geez, I mean, they're expecting a lot of me. But like, you know, it's like, yeah, it's cool, dude. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> James Hickman. Wow, how about this? Thank you for having just a real name for a a handle. (laughs) James Hickman uh, on Twitter wants to know, what was it like facing the legendary Kobayashi? Awesome experience. You know, he's one of those athletes that has an aura, has a presence, and he brings it definitely into the ring with him, whether he likes it or not. You know, just just an incredible athlete. I mean, it was definitely one of the highlights. Question from Eastwood. Uh, What are you listening to right now? Any sort of music or podcasts or? Oddly enough, so I, my music tastes are very, very wide and varied. I found a psychedelic 70s cumbia playlist that I just like play in the background. I have no idea why. <laughs> wow. But uh, that's pretty cool lately. But other than that, I mean, yeah, you know, my normal bevy of, of, of hip hop and, and punk rock is usually is on my playlist. But the psychedelic cumbia playlist, you can find it on, I think you can find it on Spotify and uh, iTunes or whatever. And it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely been nice background music uh, while I'm doing stuff around the house. All right. Well, I'm going to check that out. Joe, thanks, brother. It's great having you here. It really is a great interview. We learned a lot about you, and we appreciate you and what you've done in the business, and uh, look forward to a lot more great things from you in the, in the weeks and years and months to come. Thanks, buddy. Right on, Tony. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, by the way, uh, you can follow Samoa Joe on Twitter and Instagram, at Samoa Joe. You can listen and follow to this podcast, which is called AEW Unrestricted, for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And check out the video episodes on YouTube. You just got to search AEW Unrestricted. Aubrey, the rest is yours. You can watch Dynamite on TBS on Wednesdays. You can watch Rampage on TNT on Fridays. You can watch Elevation Monday and Dark Tuesday, both on YouTube. We're taking over. You can watch wrestling all the time. We've got a lot of it. We've got awesome people on the roster, as you can see. Joe wants to work with all of them. So watch them. It's great. Awesome. And of course... This is AEW Unrestricted. Tony Schiavone and Aubrey Edwards here. Thank you so much for listening. Come on, throw your hands up. Let me see you. Unrestricted. Got the house now. We gonna turn it.